0: Today is going to be a bit of an introductory sermon. We'll look at the first seven verses, but it's really more of an overview uh, and a few themes of what to expect for the book of Daniel and then why it's important for us. But I will read uh, Daniel chapter one, verses one to seven first, and then we'll jump in. So Daniel one, one to seven, this is God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that, they, that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Only 200 years ago, give or take a bit, but roughly only 200 200 years ago, in the West, in the Western world, it would have been unthinkable not to believe in the God of the Bible. It would have been unthinkable for people to grow up not believing in the God of the Bible. Now, if you fast forward 200 years in the West to our modern day, It is almost unthinkable for people to believe in the God of the Bible. That's certainly the environment that I grew up in. You don't assume there is a God. You assume there is no God or that he is irrelevant. And you have to then kind of reason to that point of then believing in a God, whereas the total opposite was true 200 years ago. And it's these cultural shifts that we have felt, particularly in the West, that leaves Uh, many Christians feeling like an irrelevant minority rather than the influential majority that we once were. And then it uh, causes all sorts of questions to arise like, how do we be influential again? Are we supposed to be influential? How do we be relevant when we seem like an increasingly irrelevant minority? Now, the book of Daniel is set in a very similar time in the sense of uh, the people of Israel have gone from a controlling majority. If you think about Israel under the reign of David and of Solomon, where even the Queen of Sheba from uh, modern-day Ethiopia somewhere was coming to see the kingdom and to see uh, everything that was going on in this great nation, and they went from this controlling majority to now, in the 6th century BC, this irrelevant, weak minority who are being exiled who are being taken away. Uh, Daniel, the boy who writes the book of Daniel, is a young Jewish boy. He's um, a teenager, probably at this stage. He's just been displaced from his home and he's now forced to work for the king of the nation who has just destroyed or is in the process of destroying his home country. And he's attempting to live as a faithful follower of Yahweh, of the God of Israel, while entering deeper into this place of irrelevance as a minority people, especially under a government that really could care less about his Jewish identity or his particular religion. So there are many themes through the book of Daniel. I would say one of the overarching themes as we think about this context that we can very much take to heart is this theme of comfort in confusing times. I think that's one of the overarching themes of the book of Daniel, comfort in confusing times. It would have been awfully confusing for these people, just been moved out of their home. Their city is about to be destroyed and at points through Daniel, the city is completely destroyed, which kind of has the appearance that God has abandoned them. It's very confusing times and yet God is speaking to them to try and comfort them in the midst of their confusion. Now, for this reason, Daniel, in our Day has become quite a popular book, I think. I don't know if you've noticed this, if you keep track of what other churches preach through. Daniel has become quite a popular book for uh, churches to go through because we, in the 21st century in the West, find ourselves as uh, somewhat of an increasing minority in uh, feeling like we're living under a foreign government that is increasingly unsympathetic toward Christianity. So it gives the sense that we are you're really embodying this exile identity that the Jewish people went through. And for that reason, Daniel becomes quite a popular book to preach to. And if I can just give a bit of a warning to how Daniel is sometimes portrayed, particularly if you've grown up uh, in Sunday school, um, where you hear about these stories in Daniel and they're wonderful stories, very um, easy to read to young kids. But sometimes we can sort of look at the book of Daniel through rosy colored glasses and misguided preachers can kind of give this idea that if you just have the faith of Daniel, then you can be free from your lion's den. and If you just have enough faith, then you, know, you won't go through the fiery furnace, And I think that fits in very well to a society of ours, which is very much self-preserving. We don't want cost. We don't want sacrifice. So to hear a message saying, oh, you mean I won't have to go, I won't have to be fed to the lions? I won't have to suffer? That's wonderful. I'm just going to have the faith of Daniel to do that. And I'm not sure that's the main point of the book. Plus, God has demonstrated throughout history, in scripture and through church history, that he is more than happy to feed his saints to the lions and to have them burnt alive in order to reveal his glory. Just a hundred years after Jesus walked on this earth, a man named Ignatius of Antioch, a church father, who uh, did a lot of tremendous uh, work in the early church, ministering in the same areas as the Apostle Paul, he is fed to wild beasts and slaughtered, viciously slaughtered. Fifty years after that, Polycarp, you've probably heard of him, one of the apostles of uh, John or a follower of John, he is burnt alive. In fact, the flames couldn't even kill him. For some reason, he wasn't burning and someone had to come and stab him. And that's how he died. And it brought much glory to the Lord. It was the blood of martyrs that actually fueled the growth of the early church. People saw these people that were willing to die for the hope that they have in Christ. So that's just a warning to say, let's not look at this through the lens of uh, us being freed from suffering, but rather let's look at this through how God preserves us in the midst of suffering how he comforts us in the midst of confusing times. He doesn't withdraw us from the circumstance. He actually preserves us in the circumstance, which is way more comforting than if we simply think that to be safe or comfortable, we have to change our circumstances. Actually, God can sustain us in the midst of any circumstance. So today we are going to explore more of an introduction into Daniel and the situation for Israel. I'm going to look at a few key themes and then why it's important for us. A bit of context to Daniel. The book of Daniel is set in about 605 BC and it goes for about 70 years. So Daniel writes, uh, begins writing as a teenager and by the end of Daniel, he's probably into his 80s. He's an old man. So this follows the course of the whole exile of Israel from where uh, the southern nation of Judah, which um, just to help you guys and, and so that it's not confusing. I'm just gonna be referring to Israel to refer to the nation of Judah, a bit of a history lesson. You had the people of Israel and then under David and Solomon, they were a united kingdom, but then they divided after that. And then you had the Northern kingdom of Israel and the Southern kingdom of Judah. And in around the eighth century BC, the Northern kingdom of Israel was gone. The Assyrians take them over and they become like a half breed people that then become the samaritans because uh, there's no real clean ethnic jews in there and the southern nation of judah avoids the assyrian invasion and so by the 7th century bc there's just really the southern nation of judah which become the people of israel really and that's the emphasis thereon so israel at this point of daniel is really just referring to this southern nation of judah that's managed to preserve themselves so at this time in 605 BC, the people of Israel are about to be exiled away from Jerusalem, away from Israel. They're going to be taken over 1,000 kilometers away into Babylon. Now, a bit of context for the theme of exile, which is important for us to understand. Exile just means to go into captivity, to take someone away from their home and to send them off Under foreign occupation. So that's exile, to actually send someone off into captivity. And the idea of exile was something that God had warned Israel from very early on. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God uh, warns Israel that if they don't walk in obedience to him, he will exile them. This was something that God spoke about over a thousand years before the book of Daniel. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 from verse 25, we read the Lord saying to his people, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the nations. That's the reference to exile. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So this is a clear warning that God gives back in Deuteronomy to say, if you do not walk in obedience to me, I'm going to scatter you among the nations and send you off. And the history of Israel is one of constant ups and downs. It's just a roller coaster of their history. It's like they're just stuck in this cycle of the four S's. They're stuck in this cycle of sin, suffering, supplication, and salvation. So they sin, they fall into disobedience, they suffer because of that. And then when they suffer, they feel sorry for themselves. They realize the only way to get out is to call upon the Lord in supplication, and he then saves them. But then they fall right back into sin. And it's not like this upward trajectory. It's more like a downward trajectory where they just keep sinning. They suffer. They call out to the Lord. He delivers them, but then they fall right back in to sin. And by the 6th century BC, which is where we find ourselves here in the book of Daniel, As I said, the northern kingdom is gone. Now for the southern kingdom of Judah, God's people there, Jehoiakim begins to reign and God is about to follow through on his promise to punish their disobedience. So if we look back at Daniel chapter 1 from Verse one, let's work our way through the text and then we'll look at a few key themes overall of the book of Daniel. So in verse one, we read in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, the exile basically happens in three stages. So at this point, this is the very first stage of the exile where the Babylonians... Um, are this increasingly dominant power and they are about to take over Israel. But at this stage, Egypt is still kind of powerful. So um, Jehoiakim thinks he can go to Egypt for protection. And eventually, after 20 years, so 605 BC, we're in right now, 20 years after that, uh, Jerusalem is completely wiped out. Everything is destroyed. There's three stages to it. And at this point in Daniel, We're at the first stage where a few people have been taken off, but the city is still there and Babylonians um, appoint uh, governors. They appoint new leadership for Israel, but eventually it's just going to be wiped out. So here in verse 1, we get the historical context. And then verse 2, Daniel says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that is, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now notice in verse two, this is where we clearly see Daniel's perspective of the exile. We clearly see that it is not some unforeseen loss at the hands of a dominant kingdom. Daniel very much sees here Yahweh, the God of Israel, delivering Jehoiakim into the hands of the Babylonians. In no way is he saying these Babylonians are way too strong for us. No, the God of Israel has allowed that to happen. He has given Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And then as you read the second half of verse two, it's meant to give this picture of the humiliating situation that Israel was in. So though Daniel sees the sovereign Lord Totally in control, he's the one giving Jehoiakim and the people of Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. We read here that Nebuchadnezzar brings the treasuries, all of these vessels from Israel into the treasury of his God, into these false Gods. And this was commonplace for conquering nations to basically take them as victory trophies, to rub it in their face, to show, you know, to please their gods and show the rest of the people that we've conquered this nation. And so as the people of Israel are reading this eventually, it's meant to create this picture of just an utter humiliation that that the Lord, it very much feels as though the Lord has abandoned them. And He has in that sense, He sent them away. So that's the humiliating picture here. And then from verses 3 to 4, we start to see the indoctrination process for Daniel and his friends. So read along from verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. This is uh, the indoctrination attempts of the Babylonians to basically take the best and brightest this a standard practice so that you don't have to deal with the plebs. You get the best and brightest to basically say, um, and, and indoctrinate them into the Babylonian way of life and just trust that, well, if that happens, then everyone else will follow. And also if you get the best and brightest, then it's gonna benefit you and your kingdom. So this is here, the Babylonians trying to just inculturate these Jewish people into the Babylonian way of life to basically make them captive to a Babylonian way of thinking. In verse 5, we see this continue, uh, where in verse 5 we read, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. So Daniel and his friends, these noble Jewish people, are brought on this three-year indoctrination process, and they were given the food, And the wine of the king and this is kind of a two-fold thing it was uh one to create a dependence upon the leadership of babylon to to create a dependence for these young jewish people to rely upon the royal palace for their food if you supply them i mean if they start having their own veggie gardens and there's some self-sufficiency there But if you're providing them with the food and drink of the king, then it makes them dependent upon the royal palace for their sustenance. The second thing is that it really gives them a sense of being in with the king. We're eating the same food as the king. It's to enculturate them into this way of life. And then the culmination of this is where they change their identity. They change their name. So verses 6 to 7, we read of them changing their names. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. These are all uh, Hebrew names that refer to the Hebrew God. So Daniel means God is my judge, Yahweh is my judge, and uh, Belteshazzar is his new Babylonian name, which means uh, lady protect the king, which is a reference to Bel, the, one of the Babylonian gods. So he's changing, uh, they're changing Daniel's name to refer to uh, El for Elohim, uh, Daniel, that means God is my judge, to now uh, lady protect the king, a reference to the Babylonian god Bel. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh is gracious. Now changed to Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, which is the moon god of Babylon. Mishael uh, means who is what God is. Changed to Meshach, which means who is like Aku, the moon god. Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. Now changed to Abednego, which means slave of Nebo, uh, yet another god of Babylon. So this is completely changing their identities, their names, to basically say, hey, you're under us now. You're a Babylonian. You worship our gods. Forget Yahweh. I mean, they may have been okay with a bit of Yahweh worship so long as the Babylonian gods are getting theirs as well. But of course, Yahweh is not okay with that. So this is the situation. Jerusalem is in the process of being decimated. And these uh, four faithful men, Daniel, Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are being tested as they face this indoctrination process. Now, I want to talk about some key themes that we will see from, from this passage, but really that will flow all the way throughout Daniel that we should be aware of. The first key theme is God's sovereignty over earthly kingdoms. God is sovereign over earthly kings. We will see this all throughout Daniel. We read uh, how Daniel sees the situation, divinely inspired to write this in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This is God's doing. I mean, think about it. It could have seemed, just from a natural perspective, it could have seemed to Israel that, well, you know, we became a weak nation. The Babylonians are just really strong There's just a logical explanation to this. They just became more powerful. No, God had always showed through history that he was more than capable of delivering them with the fewest of people. Think of Gideon's army. This is very much the Lord uh, orchestrating these events in order to deliver them over. Um, In Jeremiah 27, um, if you're able to turn there, turn there to Jeremiah 27. We actually see this very clearly. So Jeremiah the prophet is writing at the same time, a little bit earlier than Daniel, but he's writing basically the same time of Israel being exiled off to Babylon. And in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 6, God says, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Just listen to that. This is Yahweh saying, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. This is the God of Israel saying, my servant is Nebuchadnezzar, the one who uh, is about to destroy your whole city and take you away. He's my servant. That's my guy. He's going to fulfill my work. To make it even clearer in verse 8, Of Jeremiah 27 he says if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon I will punish that nation with the sword with famine and with pestilence this is God saying I'm using Nebuchadnezzar and every nation better bow to him or I will punish them regardless of the wickedness of any leader or nation. This is comforting for us. Regardless of the wickedness of any leader or nation, God is totally sovereign over them and he will use this to achieve his purpose. He will use any leader. We're going to see later on in Daniel, he'll raise up Cyrus, which uh, the prophet Isaiah talks about. He will raise up Cyrus to then set his people free. just raise up one wicked leader to take them off to Babylon, then raise up another leader to get them out and bring them home. It's easy work for God. And to this day, right now in our day, God is able to use wicked rulers, wicked leadership, wicked government, good government, good rulers. He's able to use anyone. He is not, confound, he is not um, uh, restricted by the character of any leader. He's able to use every single government to achieve his purpose. It is not possible... To rightly understand God's sovereignty and still remain in a state of hopelessness about the state of the world. If you're in a state of hopelessness about the state of the world, you have not understood God's sovereignty. The second theme, the second theme, which is a, a just wonderfully comforting theme through the book of Daniel, is of refinement in exile. God doesn't send his people away just as an arbitrary punishment, just for amusement. It's intentional. He exiles them and it's meant to be a refining moment. Exile is there to refine God's people so that they would know what true faithfulness is. I should have told you to keep your your finger on Deuteronomy 4. Um, You can turn back there, but I'll read it out anyway. In Deuteronomy 4, from the passage we read out earlier, where God a thousand years earlier warns of the exile, uh, he says in verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. So notice this is God saying from there, from the place of exile, You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God and he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So notice this in verse 29, from there, from the place of exile, from the place of abandonment, from the place of this foreign nation destroying your city and and taking you over, uh, that's where you will seek the Lord your God. That's where you will be refined and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's in the place of despair and desolation that God's people are meant to be refined to have a right dependence upon him. Don't despise despair and desolation. That's the place of refinement for God's people. And if you fast forward a thousand years from Deuteronomy back to the 6th century BC, Jeremiah writes a letter to the Israelites. This is from the passage that everyone knows about, everyone who's grown up. You may even have a tattoo of Jeremiah 29:11. Uh, it's the passage that everyone loves to go to and the context of that is of course of the Lord through Jeremiah comforting his people who are about to go into exile well they are in exile so for a bit of context Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah writing and saying to the people hey settle down in Babylon build houses plant gardens be given in marriage within your covenant community be given in marriage and seek the welfare of the city because in its welfare or in its peace, you will find yours. So he says, don't resist it. Remember what uh, the Lord said in Jeremiah 27, if anyone resists Nebuchadnezzar, then I will punish them. So he's saying to his people, don't resist it. You need this. You're going off into exile, plant yourselves there, and then we get to the passage, when 70 years are complete, I'll fulfill my promise and bring you back for I know the plans I have for you. They're good plans. They're not to destroy you. They're to give you a hope and a future. And then in verse 12, in this place of exile, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 is really about. It's about refinement. When you get tossed away particularly talking to the Israelites, obviously, before we apply it to ourselves. But it's really about refinement that comes when you are exiled. And it's the same passage that God said a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy 4, where he says, from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. This was always God's plan of refining his people, to send them away to be in exile so that from that place they would recover a right understanding of their God. They would call upon Him. Isaiah 48.10, God says of His people Israel, I have refined you, but not like silver. No, I have refined you in the furnace of affliction. That's how He refines His people. That's not a nice... Picture, but that's what God is saying. I've refined you in the furnace of affliction. And is this not the same sanctifying means that we see God use through the New Testament? There are many examples. If I can give just one, think of Peter. Think of a uh, proud, strong Peter before the crucifixion of Christ. Right before Peter is about to boldly say to the Lord, before Jesus is going to go to the cross, Peter says, uh, I will never deny you. I'm never going to do it, Lord. Other people will, but not me. I'm your follower. And before this, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, that's his name. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you. He has demanded to sift you like wheat. That's not a pleasant process, sifting wheat in, in those days involved um, basically trampling on the wheat on the threshing floor, just stomping on them and then throwing them up in the air and the chaff would be blown away and the wheat would remain. And Jesus is saying to Simon, hey, Satan has demanded to crush you. And you can imagine, you can imagine Peter saying to Jesus at that point, well, you told him not to, right? You're not going to do it. I mean, I've been following you. And Jesus doesn't say that. He says, so when it happens, you're going to get crushed. Turn back and strengthen your brothers and sisters. And just think about how Peter felt. He's just said, I'm never going to deny you. And then Jesus told him, no, you will. You'll deny me when the rooster crows, you'll know it. And imagine that moment of Peter denying Christ and the Lord Jesus just with a piercing gaze looking at him. Imagine the humiliation that that would have felt and let alone then he's about to uh, witness his saviour die and Peter doesn't know that he's going to rise again. He, wasn't, he, he clearly wasn't aware of the things of God at that point. That's what Jesus said to him in Matthew 16. Imagine the humiliation, imagine the crushing weight of that, of denying Jesus, and that was God's refining work. He had to go through that. He had to be refined in that place so that he could then be prepared to lead a community of disciples. God's refining work comes amidst exilic conditions. It comes amidst despair and desolation. That's where God refines his people. We follow a suffering servant. That's the comfort so these themes fall under the main theme throughout Daniel of comfort amidst confusing times. It's confusing when you are suffering. It's confusing when you are in an exile-like state. It's confusing when you feel afflicted. You naturally ask the question, well, why is this happening? But it's comforting to know that nothing is purposeless. When you understand God's sovereignty, it's comforting to know that God is sovereign over all of the wicked and chaotic rulers, over all of the terrible things that modern-day governments have instituted. God is sovereign over that. He has not lost control. And I want to finish just briefly with why this is important for us. I've got three reasons why the book of Daniel is going to be important for us now. Uh, We know the context of Daniel's exile. The first reason as to why it's important is because we are exiles. We are pilgrims. We're strangers. We get given that identity by the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews, in giving his wall of faith in chapter 11, describes all of these men and women of God who have served faithfully. And it's, it's quite uh, depressing in one sense, as you read it, because they never actually inherited uh, the, the promise. And, and we are yet to inherit the promise. The promise waits uh, for the final day of redemption. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about and he says because they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He says they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God because they are exiles and they're not trying to make home here. They're not trying to make home on on this earth. They're actually looking forward to the city whose builder and architect is God. That's what they're looking forward to. And we are meant to see a correlation between the exile of God's people here for Israel. We're meant to see a correlation between that and our existence in the sense that we're not at home. God's people were not at home in Babylon. We're not at home here. We are meant to be strangers and pilgrims. So we are exiles. Peter says conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. And then he says, and we went through this a few weeks ago, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he's saying you're exiles here. I want you to be at home in the sense I want you to be good citizens, conduct yourself honorably, so be involved in society, but don't put down such deep roots that your hope is in this world. Your hope is in the world to come. Your hope is in a heavenly home. Therefore, you are exiles. And this leads us to the second point. We will face pressure to conform. This is the key thing for Daniel and his friends. They are trying to be uh, inculturated and indoctrinated into the Babylonian way of life. The Babylonians are trying to basically conform them to that way of life. And we, in this day and age, will face pressure to conform. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age. We will face pressure to conform. Babylon takes shape in, in various ways throughout history. Sometimes the New Testament refers to Babylon as Rome, Other times it's to Babylon, other times it's just to basically anything that sets itself up against God. Babylon can look different from place to place. And the Babylon of our day, which I think threatens us the most, is this self-pleasing, consumer-oriented way of life. That's the Babylon of our day. It's part of it that is just totally against the way of discipleship. It's where you're brought up being told that you are to pursue your dreams. You're to express your individuality. You are to find the right products for your pleasure, whether the product is a career or a relationship or even a church. Find the right product for you. It's a very self-pleasing way. That's the water we swim in. It's entirely based on what is right for you. And it leads to, to false disciples claiming to follow Jesus when really... They are just following their own individual pilgrimage and Jesus is helping them achieve their dreams and desires. That's not the way of the cross. It also leads to churches catering to this lifestyle where churches function more like a service provider, here to attend to individual needs and make people feel comfortable and happy because that's how the world pleases clients and that's how we attract people and keep people. And that's not the way of The cross. We'll see more of these themes uh, throughout Daniel, but there is an indoctrination to the secular way of life occurring. There is always a pressure to conform. There's a pressure that we feel to try and sound like other people. So some people try and even change their language to sound like people of the world or dress like people of the world. Now, I'm not saying we all need to wear like weird suits and dress differently or anything, but if the heart's desire is to sound a certain way or dress a certain way so that you can fit in with what everyone else is doing, then that's a dangerous slippery slope to being conformed to the pattern of the world, to change your sort of vocab to try and appear more normal to sort of turn down your distinctiveness so that you're not going to look weird. Strangers and exiles will look a bit weird. You can usually tell a foreigner. So there will be a pressure to conform. And lastly, the last reason why it's important, following on from facing the pressure to conform, is that we must remain undefiled. We must remain unstained, by the world, As we face pressures to be conformed to the pattern of this age, we must remain undefiled. One of the key verses of Daniel, we'll, we'll touch on more next week, is verse 8. Amidst all of this, you see this just contrast of uh, Daniel and his friends being brought on this indoctrination, inculturation process. And then you get to verse 8, and it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. There is always a faithful remnant of God's people who will say, I resolve not to defile myself with the Babylon of our day. To resolve not to defile yourself, to remain unstained from the world. Followers of Jesus can't have their cake and eat it too. That's why Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't do it. It'll be either one or the other. So we must resolve to remain undefiled. We'll look more at the ins and outs of this next week. But the key is to have this resolve to not become stained. It's the same thing that James says in his letter. In James 1.27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, which I think you could paraphrase as saying to have a transformed heart that reflects God's heart for the most vulnerable. Have that, and then what's the next thing he says? And to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's the same principle that Daniel has. Resolve not to defile themselves. We remain unstained from this world. That's pure and undefiled religion. Don't buy into any lies, any secular indoctrination that we need to seem more relevant by adopting all of the sort of things of this world. Of course, there's contextualization, but the reality is we are pilgrims and our uh, direction is to be conformed more and more to Christ, not to the ways of the world. So this is our introduction to Daniel. Be comforted. Be comforted as you see through the book of Daniel the ongoing themes of God's sovereignty over earthly kingdoms where you'll see these visions of all of these rulers and authorities and at the end of it, there's always the kingdom that will last forever and ever and will crush everything else. Be comforted as you see God's sovereignty over earthly kingdoms and rulers, and the fact that God always refines His people in exile. He always refines His people through affliction. It is not purposeless. There is purpose in pain, to use a cliche. And finally, be aware. Be aware of living faithfully as an exile where you are not conformed to the pattern of this world. I hope that as we go through Daniel, you'll begin to see areas of your life that maybe. You have been becoming defiled by the secular ideology, a particular way of thinking that you've been indoctrinated by the way of this world and not by the pattern of Scripture. Be aware of the need to not defile yourself. Let me pray and then we will take the Lord's Supper. Father, as we approach uh, your precious word over the coming months through the book of Daniel, we do pray that it would be awfully comforting for us. We pray that you would speak to us, that we would be very aware of areas of our life that we, we ought to say, I'm not going to be defiled by that. Help us to discern the areas of our life where we need to take a stand, or the areas of our life where uh, it is not necessary. We can, for the sake of the gospel, have a loose grip. And I pray uh, that you would, all through this, just illuminate us to the majesty of Christ and to God's sovereignty over every single thing, over every earthly ruler and authority, and help us to long for our heavenly home to realise that we are exiles here. We desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.